Hi everyone, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors at HMCC of Jakarta and it's my privilege to preach the Word of God to us today. So today we're starting a new two-part sermon series on death and as we're talking about death, I know that we also have to talk about grief. So we're going to spend much of next week's sermon to address that, but in this first part, we're going to suspend addressing grief and first give a big picture overview of death first, and then next week, we're going to apply what the Bible teaches about death, specifically to the topic of grief, uh, as we look at hope and glory in light of death. So that's coming up next week. But today, we're going to start with just an overview of death. Uh, So let's get right into it. In 2018, Matthew McCullough, author of the book Remember Death, he wrote the following. Death is a fundamental human experience, uniting all humans across time and space, race and class. But in our time and place, death isn't something we think about very often, if at all. But try as we might to avoid the subject, every one of us experiences death's shadow every day. It shows up in our insecurities about who we are and why we matter. It shows up in our dissatisfaction with the things we believe should make us happy. And it shows up in our pain over the loss of every good thing that doesn't last long enough. We can't avoid death and its effects. We shouldn't avoid talking about it either." End quote. Again, he wrote that in 2018. And now fast forward to 2021 with over 4.5 million deaths and counting from COVID-19 alone, death is now pushed to the forefront of many of our minds. You know, we cannot avoid thinking about death as people around us, even loved ones, are passing away. So how should we even begin to process everything? As we come face to face with the reality of death and its effects, what hope do we have? Are we simply left with despair and distraction before our own inevitable deaths? Or is there more? You know, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And as we'll see, the Bible has a lot to say about death. In fact, it's only in truly coming to grips with death that we can truly treasure the life that Christ came to give us. So the one thing for today is when we realize how much death takes from us, we can rejoice in how much Christ has given to us. When we realize how much death takes from us, we can rejoice in how much Christ has given to us. Uh, Each week, we usually preach expositional sermons through one passage of Scripture, but today we're going to take a bit of a different approach and we're going to look at various texts uh, related to this issue of death. You know, the Bible talks about death in a variety of ways. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, and there's eternal death, and they're all related, and they all have devastating effects. But given how much could be said about each of those aspects of death, we're just going to limit ourselves today to primarily address physical death. And just to give credit where it's due, Matthew McCullough, uh, his book, Remember Death, has particularly influenced my understanding on what the Bible has to say about death. And of course, God's Word is the highest authority, so uh, that's our foundation. And McCullough is kind of just a soundboard of sorts for me, so much of what I'm going to be sharing today is going to be colored with this influence, but again, all rooted in Scripture. So we're going to look at death in three parts. The first is the origin of death, where we'll understand how and why death came into the world. And then second, the shadow of death, where we'll begin to feel the devastating effects of death if this temporal life is really all there is. And then third, the death of death, where we'll rejoice in how Christ has conquered death and now gives eternal life to all who come to Him by faith. So that's where we're headed. First, the origin of death. In the opening chapters of the Bible, we find that death is not present. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And after each day, he pronounces his creation good. And it all builds up to this climax of his creation where God created man, male and female, in his own image. You know, we're not going to get into all the nuances of what it means to be made in the image of God, but it's clear that God gave human beings a unique identity and dignity that he did not give to the rest of creation. And he gave them a unique purpose to represent him to the rest of creation in expanding and cultivating his kingly rule throughout the whole earth. And God literally gave them everything on earth to enjoy. And God saw everything he made. And for the first time, it was not only just good, it was very good. And that's how Genesis chapter 1 ends. You know, human beings were the crown of his creation. Death, mourning, pain, suffering, loss, shame, guilt were all absent from God's good creation. So in the beginning, we see a validation of our identity dignity, purpose, and enjoyment of all creation. You know, death is not present to taint any of those things for us. In creation, we see that we do matter. Our lives do have meaning and purpose. We have been given the whole earth for our enjoyment. But, and this is a big qualifier, but they all come as undeserved gifts from our gracious creator. They're not ours in our own right but we bear his image and his word pronounces what is good and it's his world that we enjoy. It's God's. In other words, our identity and dignity, our meaning and purpose, our enjoyment of creation all come from the God who created us. Apart from him, we are nothing. So in the next chapter, God gave his image bearers a warning to remember their place. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, it says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You know, though we are the crown of God's creation, we must always remember that we cannot define ourselves apart from God. If we live according to His word, then we will prosper according to His good design. But if we try to define ourselves, our lives for ourselves apart from God, then we will lose our lives. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent casts doubt on God's authoritative word by saying to the woman, did God actually say? And then he goes as far as denying God's authoritative word. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, it says this, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the subtext, the underlying uh, connotation here of what the serpent is saying is God is not the main character in this world. You're the main character and the main character can't die. You're too important to die. And tragically, the man and the woman forget their place before their creator. They believe the lie that they're the main characters in the world and that God only has a supporting role to them when it really should be the other way around. They try to define themselves as their own gods apart from the one true God and they lose everything. You know, if we're honest with ourselves, oftentimes we also live as if we're the main characters in God's world. We get upset when things don't go our way. You know, ask yourself this, you know, how do I respond when sitting in traffic or waiting for a grab that's just spinning around in circles on my phone? 
How do I respond when there's a difficult situation or a difficult person in my life? And then now ask yourself this, do my responses show that I believe that God is the main character and that I only have a supporting role? Or do my responses show that I believe that I am the main character and that God and everyone else only have supporting roles to me? You know, if we're convinced that God is the main character of His world, then no matter what happens in our lives, we can enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And our responses will show that. You know, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't struggle. But in our heart of hearts, we can honestly say, it's not about me. But if we're convinced that it is about me rather than God, if we try to be the main characters in God's world, then our lives will begin to crumble and we will eventually lose everything He's given to us, including life itself. And that's exactly what the man and the woman begin to discover. As the consequence of death enters into God's creation, they immediately begin to feel its shadow. They feel insecure, guilty, ashamed, fearful. They feel disoriented in their once enjoyable and peaceful home. And they begin to hide from God Himself, their only source of life, dignity, meaning, and purpose. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they stand in God's creation anymore. The death of their bodies would only be a culmination of the process of death that has already begun. So how should we understand the origin of death? In the beginning, death was not present in God's good creation. But man, being dissatisfied with imaging God and desiring to be God instead, tried to be the main character in God's world. They disobeyed God's word and sinned against their creator. And the wages of sin is death. And death spread to all men because all sinned. In other words, death is God's punishment that perfectly fits with man's offense. Death tells us that we are not the main character in God's world. He is. Death tells us that we are not indispensable, but only God is. The world will go on without us, but it cannot go on without Him. And just let that sink in a bit more. Death reminds us that all of life is from God, through God, and to God. He is the main character in His creation, not us. Life is not about you, but it's about Him. You know, being made in the image of God tells us that our sense of dignity and identity and meaning and purpose are real. They're God-given. They're real. But the punishment of death reminds us that all those are good gifts from God. And without Him, we lose everything. We were not meant to live apart from God. For apart from Him, there's no life at all. And that's what we'll begin to look at next. So first, the origin of death. And second, the shadow of death. God's word says in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, it's wise to live in constant awareness of the fact that we are one day going to die. That's wise. But the opposite is also true. It's foolish to, to live in constant denial of the fact that we are one day going to die. That's foolish. Yet more than any other generation in history, this generation is more prone to live in constant denial of death. 
You know, just a few generations ago, it was common to have a lot of kids. And one of the reasons for that is because death was more common and more familiar for generations before us. In the early 20th century, the average life expectancy in Indonesia was around 30 years old. And since people died in the home where they lived, everyone would have literally watched their loved ones, friends and family, young and old, die right before their eyes. It's probably very likely that your grandparents had a lot of siblings and they were quite familiar with seeing death all around them. But now for many of us, we might not see and experience death as much as previous generations have. But we still feel death's shadow in our everyday lives. Let me explain. You know, a person's shadow is not the person, but it's the darkness cast by that person that alerts you to his presence. If you see someone's shadow, you know that person is there. In the same way, death's shadow is not death itself, but it's the darkness cast in our lives that alerts us that death's presence is here. And if we begin to recognize the shadow of death in our lives, then we will begin to live in constant awareness of the fact that we are one day going to die. Death is present. And the Bible says living that way is wise. The Old Testament has a collection of books known as wisdom literature. And one of those books is Ecclesiastes which has an interesting approach to wisdom because for much of the book, it presents a under-the-sun perspective. It presents life from a limited earthly horizon as if this temporal life on earth is all there is. And then it just goes down the list of what many people hope to gain from this temporal life and then concludes over and over, one after another, that it's all meaningless. And then at the very end, in light of the meaninglessness of the under-the-sun perspective of life, the book concludes with exhorting people to therefore live with an above-the-sun perspective. Lift up your eyes and see that this is not all there is under the sun. This temporal life is not all there is. God is not distant, but He's near. God has spoken, and He will one day hold every person accountable for how He lived according to His word. There's more than life than what's under the sun. So as we read from Ecclesiastes to gain some wisdom, keep in mind that he's assuming an under-the-sun perspective, as if this temporal life on earth is all there is. And these are his conclusions. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 11. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So the teacher here concludes that everything is meaningless because no one will be remembered. You know, people die and they're forgotten. So what meaning does anyone's life really have? And let's just think about that for a moment. You know, what are some of the ways that you're tempted to find meaning and purpose in life? Uh, what are some of the ways that you try to be, you want to be remembered? You know, perhaps you're trying to be remembered through family. But how many of you remember the names of your great-grandparents? Let's say you have children and later you have grandchildren. You have a profound influence on their lives, I hope. And then let's say your grandchildren then have children. It's very likely that your great-grandchildren won't even remember your name. And that's just your name. What about the rest of your life? They won't remember what you were like, what you enjoyed, who your friends were, what other people thought of you, what you accomplished. In a hundred years' time, your very own descendants, your family, will probably not remember you at all. So that's family, but 
Now, perhaps you're trying to be remembered through work, prestige, accomplishments. But then listen to the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says this, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. You know, with the passing of time, even history's greatest kings of the greatest empires are forgotten. The sculptures of the great kings in history, which were intended to stand forever as a monument of who they were and what they accomplished, they're now buried under the earth. Or they're standing as anonymous figures in museums being held up and they're missing noses and limbs. You know, since we will all one day die, even the greatest and most accomplished of our day will also no longer be remembered. You know, whenever we try to define our lives for ourselves apart from God, death is right there to remind us of how futile and meaningless that is. No matter how much you work and accomplish, no matter how much pleasure you squeeze out of this life, no matter how much wealth and possessions you accumulate, no matter how important you think you are or how how important other people tell you you are, you're you're not indispensable. You'll one day be forgotten. And death assures us of that. Still, you know, we don't just experience death at the time of our deaths, but death progressively steals away everything that we love. Jesus draws our attention to this fact in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus warns against storing up treasures for ourselves on earth because you will eventually lose it all. You know, yes, he's talking about material possessions, but it's true for everything else as well. Over time, everything we love and treasure on earth will decay and be stolen from us. And death is the greatest thief of all. There's an impermanence and irreversibility to everything good in our lives. Every delicious meal has a last bite. Every good book has a last page. Every vacation has to come to an end. And you can't relive your childhood or your university years. You can't watch your kids grow up twice. Everything is lost with the passing of time. But when you're young, it's hard to grasp this truth. You feel like your whole life is ahead of you and everything seems like gain rather than loss. New friends, new experiences, more education, more skills, increasing assets. You feel like your life is like a savings account that keeps getting added to. But when you zoom out to see the full horizon of your life here on earth, you see that you're actually not saving anything at all. Everything you have, your healthy body, your marketable skills, your sharp mind, your treasured possessions, your loving relationships will one day be everything you lost. You know, a few months ago, 
uh, my family was in the U.S. and my wife uh, wrote down a relevant reflection that she's given me permission to share here. Uh, she wrote this. My most significant event last week was seeing my grandma, who is now 97, and in the nursing home. Just six years ago, she was dancing at our wedding, but her health has been sharply on the decline. I was actually so shocked seeing her state since the last time I saw her, she was still relatively healthy. She is so tiny and frail now. I cried a lot when I saw her. She raised me and my sister as she lived with us while my parents were working. I just, witnessed, I just witnessed firsthand the frailty and the brevity of life and how very true it is that all things and all people, no matter how amazing or cushy or ambitious your life was, we shall all pass away. If you want to be wise, then in every elderly person that you meet, you should see a foreshadowing of yourself. You should see the many losses that they've undergone that are also awaiting you. The loss of youth and opportunity, the loss of mobility and memory, the loss of family and friends. The process of death has stolen so much from them and such loss will be what you will also one day experience as well. Even if you get everything you want in life, it's not truly yours. You will soon lose it all. The more you have, the more you'll lose. And the more you love what you have, the more painful the loss will be. So the origin of death, the shadow of death, and third, the death of death. So what are we to do with all of this? You know, how should we even begin to process coming face to face with the reality of death and its effects? You know, what hope do we have? What are our options? Well, Albert Camus, the French philosopher, he proposed two options. The first option he gave is to commit suicide. Rather than drawing out the inevitable in our meaningless lives, we can just end our lives now. You know, that's not very hopeful, and I pray that none of us actually take that route. That's hopeless, and that's not our only option. The second option he gave is what he called revolt. It's to live as if you matter. It's to live in constant denial of death. You pretend as if your life matters. But as we've seen from the very beginning in Psalm 90, it's foolish to live in constant denial of the fact that you are one day going to die. It's essentially living life dishonestly. It's rejecting truth to cope with death. But it doesn't really offer any real hope. But there's a third option that Camus didn't name. And this third option is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, offers us a living hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4 to says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, just... Just think about this passage in light of everything that we've been unpacking about death. You know, in our sin, we deserve death. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are born again to a living hope. You know, before we were defined by death. But now through faith in Jesus Christ, we are now defined by Christ. You know, under the bondage of death, this life is perishable, defiled, and fading. But in Christ, we are now promised an inheritance, a life that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
know, just let that sink in. Think about all that death takes away from us and then think about all that Christ gives to us. And then begin to rejoice with all the saints who truly recognize what this means for us. Rejoice with the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because we have broken God's law, we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we deserve the penalty of death. We already saw that in Genesis. But if Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf, if he's paid the death that we deserve for our sins, and if he's resurrected to be our living Savior, then what can death really do to us now? Death is now the door to the fullness of eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, the term eternal life is not just talking about the quantity of life, that you live for all eternity after death, but it's also talking about the quality of life. You know, for believers in Jesus Christ, on the other side of death is a feast. This is how the prophet Isaiah describes the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Amen. You know, death here is described as the covering that is cast over all people. The veil that is spread over all nations. It's the shadow of death that we've been talking about that casts its darkness on all of life. But in the new heavens and new earth, God will swallow up death forever. And the effects of death will disappear with it. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Death with its insatiable appetite will one day itself be swallowed up. Death will die. But notice with the removal of death, God's people don't just live in a neutral state for all eternity. Eternal life is described as this epic worldwide feast with all peoples enjoying rich food and well-aged wine. No, this is not a picture of disembodied souls floating on clouds playing harps. This is a picture of physical people from all over the physical world eating physical food, drinking physical wine without death and all of its devastating effects. You know, I'm sure we're going to be doing so much more than just feasting, but this is just a vivid picture, glimpse of unending joy and satisfaction with God and with one another in the world that God created for us to live in. It's a total restoration and consummation of God's original good physical creation. And I long for that day. You know, at some point in your lives, perhaps even during this pandemic, you're going to be asked by a friend or perhaps one of your children or someone else in your life, why do people die? You know, why do people die and what hope do we have? You know, perhaps this is a question that you have asked yourself. You know, I know that we've gone through an overview of death rather quickly. So what I want to do now is just to give us some handlebars to hold on to so that when this question comes up, and it will, 
will know how to respond. So in a nutshell, what the Bible has to say about death can be summarized as creation, fall, redemption, consummation. In creation, there was no death. Death was not the original plan. We were created to live forever with each other and with God in his good creation. But then in the fall, when man sinned against God by disobeying him and by trying to set ourselves up as the main character in his world, that's when death entered the world. So now throughout life, we feel the shadow or the devastating effects of death looming over us in every area of our lives and we will eventually die. But then in redemption, Jesus came to the world to live the sinless life that we were supposed to live, to take the penalty that we deserve for our sin by dying for us on the cross, to resurrect a new life to show that he has victory over sin and death. So now if we respond to him in repentance and faith, we don't need to be afraid of death anymore because we will also come back to life just as Christ has. And in consummation, there will be no more death. We will live forever in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus and all who believe in him. And we will enjoy the fullness of everything we enjoyed in this life, but with no more sadness, no more sickness, no more pain, and no more end. So creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Death was not the original plan. Death is a result of sin. Jesus defeated death, so we don't need to fear anymore. And heaven awaits all those who repent and believe in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches about death in a nutshell. Hold on to that as those questions come up with other people or even with yourself. Now, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to hear Jesus' invitation to you. You know, this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus' invitation to all those who have not yet believed in him. He says to you, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk with money, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. You know, if that's you, if you know that that's what you need and it cannot be found anywhere else apart from Christ, then I invite you to respond to Christ by repenting of your sin, believing in Jesus and following him as your Lord and Savior for the rest of your life. You will never regret it. You know, in Christ, we have the death of death. In Christ, we have eternal life. In Christ, we have eternal joy in an unending feast, no longer with the shadow of death looming over us. So rather than seeking life apart from God, we now humbly confess that there's no life apart from Him. And it's only when we give up our lives to Him that we truly find life. And rather than trying to find our identity and meaning in the things that we do or the things that we have, trying to squeeze everything out of this temporal life, we can enjoy everything now for what they simply are. They're appetizers. It's not the feast. They're appetizers. You know, appetizers are never meant to satisfy you, but they're to whet your appetite for the main course. In the same way, all the joys that we experience on earth now are never meant to satisfy us but they're meant to whet our appetites for the feast to come. So in that sense, if we're in Christ, we never truly lose anything. You know, who mourns the loss of appetizers when the steak comes out? 
Appetizers are not meant to be the main course, but the appetizers, if the appetizers are good, if these joys on earth are good, how much greater expectation we have for the main course, for eternal life to come. You know, family, work, relationships were never meant to be the source of our identity, meaning, and purpose. Scenic vacations, worldly comforts, precious moments were never meant to be only experienced in this life. If we're in Christ, we enjoy everything we have in this life for what they are, appetizers. They're wetting our appetites for the fullness of eternal life and their measurable joy to come. At the same time, I know that many things in our lives don't always seem like even appetizers. We struggle through much of life, and I know that these especially have not been easy times. You know, many of us have seen death more closely and more frequently over the last couple years than any other time in our lives. You know, we're going to talk more specifically about grief over death next week, but as we close out today's message, I just want to encourage those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. You know, whenever we feel the shadow of death in our lives, we're given the grace not only to lament to God about death and its effects, but we're also given the grace to turn our attention to Christ and rejoice in how much He has given us in His life, death, and resurrection. Because Jesus conquered the grave, death will one day die and its covering will be lifted. And so we no longer live in light of death, but we now live in light of eternal life. Uh, here's a life application. It's just three questions to ask yourself and three kinds of prayers to pray this week. First is, where in your life do you seek meaning and purpose apart from God? And pray prayers of repentance. Second, where in your life do you feel the shadow of death? Perhaps it's meaningless in work, loss of finances, diminished health, end of leisure, or something else. Pray prayers of lament. That means turning to God, bringing your complaint, asking boldly for help, and choosing to trust Him. Third, what in your life do you enjoy as an appetizer of what's to come in the fullness of eternal life? And then pray prayers of thanksgiving. So once again, the one thing is when we realize how much death takes from us, we can rejoice in how much Christ has given to us. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.